Hello, bitch, and welcome to my podcast. My name is Katie, and welcome back to my mini-series, Serial Killers and Narcissists. Now, today's case and psychological analysis is on Ted Bundy. Yes, that's right. We're starting off with a bang, bitches. Now, Ted Bundy, can I just tell you, researching this case... Oh my God, it's left me so freaking paranoid and anxious. Like I already have anxiety and this case has made me so on edge. For the last few weeks, I have not slept (laughs) Um, because, you know, Ted Bundy, (laughs) this is probably the worst case to research as a young female who's not living at home because... Ted Bundy attacked young women who also resemble what I look like, long brown hair, Um, yeah, in their sleep. So one of my worst fears is to be murdered in my sleep. And this was the case that I've been looking into. Um, (laughs) So let's just get started. Um, Ted Bundy, yeah, he's one of the most well-known serial killers of our time. Um, And uh, he's quite the piece of work, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, Ted Bundy is so notorious because this guy went completely undetected for so many years and he seemed normal and ordinary from the outside. No one could believe it. All of his family and friends, they were shocked. They were mystified. They could not believe that this person that they knew was being accused and charged with these horrible crimes. They didn't want to believe it. They still didn't believe it. His mom, no. I watched those uh, Confessions of Ted Bundy tapes, whatever it is. And uh, apparently when the journalist showed her his confessions, she was like, so who's in the mood for some apple pie? And they're like, yeah, sure, Eleanor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, everyone was really shocked. And any female or anyone who was really keeping up with the trial at the time, they could not believe that someone so handsome and so good looking could ever be capable of doing these horrible things because Ted was put together. He was clean cut. He was a promising young law student and he came from middle class background. He was attractive, charming and articulate. However, behind this facade, Ted Bundy was a cunning and manipulative narcissistic psychopath and necrophiliac who kidnapped, raped, mutilated and murdered at least 30 women across seven states in America from 1974 to 1978. This episode today is going to be the full version of the Ted Bundy story from start to finish. We're, discuss- we're going to discuss everything, okay? So get ready. We're going to discuss his childhood, um, his relationships, his uh, careers, his university life, and we'll obviously talk about the murders and his captures and escapes and his execution. So this episode today is going to be a big one. Um, Get buckled in, you little bitches. And uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be a two-hour big-ass episode again. So get ready because I'm ready. So let's go. Ted was born in Burlington, Vermont on the 24th of November, 1946. So Ted is a Sagittarius um, and that's my corresponding sign, by the way. (laughs) Um, His mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, was unwed at the time that she fell pregnant with Ted and nobody knew who the father was. So this was very scandalous at the time and Eleanor's parents were very religious. So for their daughter, their young daughter, to have a baby outside of wedlock it was frowned upon like it was shameful to the family 
So they did what any other loving, supportive parent would do. And they sent her off to one of those homes where young mothers and single mothers would go to give birth in private. So they sent Eleanor to the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers in Vermont. And this is where she gave birth to Ted. Ted and Eleanor returned home. And this is where Eleanor would live with her parents. And Ted was going to be raised as her parents' adopted baby. So Eleanor's parents covered up this dirty little secret by telling the community and Ted that Ted was their adopted baby from an orphanage. So Ted would then grow up under this lie that his grandparents were his parents and his actual mother, Eleanor, was his older sister. So everyone thinks this part of the story is really weird and was a major trigger for Ted. Um, But I think it was probably common back then. I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there. (laughs) But I feel like when you'd find out, eventually you would be angry because you'd feel like everyone lied to you. Um, I mean, that's how I would feel anyway. But I don't really think this was like the tipping point of why Ted is a psychopath. But Ted's household, it wasn't good, guys. Yeah, it was very dysfunctional. There was a lot of violence and abuse in the home. So Ted's grandmother, his fake mom, um, she suffered from major depression and she would often elect to get ECT, um, which is only used in very extreme cases of depression. So just to kind of put things into perspective, I used to be a claims assessor for a life insurance company. And I remember I was managing a income protection claim for someone who was suffering from depression. And he had six rounds of ECT. And unfortunately, he just kept relapsing every six weeks. And so finally, when his wife put in his TPD claim, which is total and permanent disability when she finally put in that claim I was like oh my god thank god like I cannot wait to like properly pay this person because they're suffering so much and what they're going through is really debilitating so um, once that claim came through I did one assessment it was approved and it was a 1.2 million dollar claim so hopefully that just puts things into perspective that when you get ECT for depression that's like last resort that's when you're really suffering so that's what Ted's grandma um, slash mom was going through, but she was also diagnosed with agoraphobia, which is anxiety with open spaces and going outside. There's a movie called Copycat with Sigourney Weaver, <laughs> and that's a really good movie. Um, me and my sister watch it all the time, but she had it. So in that movie, you can kind of see like the, the what the person goes through and how they go blurry and they can't see, and it's just like really intense for them. And then there's also another movie, um, Woman in the Window on Netflix. Amy Adams had it as well. But Ted's grandfather, so his fake dad, um, he was an abusive asshole. Uh, He doesn't seem like he was a good guy at all. It was said that he had a very violent temper. So he's been described as abusive, domineering, and a bully. And it was reported that one time he threw one of his daughters, so her name was Julia, which is Eleanor's sister, down a flight of stairs. So, I mean, I don't know why he didn't throw Eleanor down the stairs if she was pregnant. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) But like, yeah, so he threw Julie down the stairs. He also would beat animals. So I think anyone who beats animals is like really fucked up in the head. So he would beat dogs and apparently he would take the tails of cats and swing it around his head and like throw it. 
I know this is what Ted reported, but he just seems like a piece of shit to me. Ted said that his grandfather was, quote, an extremely violent and frightening individual, end quote. Um, Ted also claimed that his mother, Eleanor, so Eleanor told him that she was being sexually assaulted by her father. So this then later sparked all these rumors, like later on down the track, that Ted's grandfather could be his father, which would mean that Ted was a product of incestuous rape. So, I mean, that's just something to consider. But um, Ted's father has never been confirmed. So just to recap, um, Ted's sister is really his mother. Ted's fake father is an abusive asshole. And Ted's fake mother is really sick. So um, I don't know if that's the best foundation for a stable upbringing, but that's just what we're working with. Now, when Ted was just three years old, he was already showing some odd behavior. So Ted had an unusual interest in the macabre death and darkness, and he had a fascination with knives. So Ted used to enjoy playing and collecting knives. So there's this one story um, from his auntie, Julia. (laughs) Remember Julia? Um, So Julia woke up one night and she saw kitchen knives placed all around her bed from Ted and he was sitting at the end of the bed laughing at her and she was like um this is really weird because like he's three years old he's a toddler what the fuck it's been later analyzed that the behavior of playing with knives would only ever occur in a very seriously traumatized child who has been themselves victims of abuse or they have witnessed uh, violence among family members in the home so when ted was about four years old this is when eleanor decided to move out of the family home So she packed up and she moved with Ted to Tacoma, Washington. And once she was settled there and was working, that's when Eleanor met a man and his name was John Bundy. Now, Ted never liked John, never liked him from the get-go. Ted would often act out as a child. He would throw temper tantrums in public and he would also wet his pants on purpose in public. So he was just a bit of a brat. But Eleanor and John got married. They got married in 1951 and they went on to have four children plus Ted. So Ted ended up having four half siblings. So that's a big household. And if you think about it, Ted went from being in a household of adults where he was like the star of the show. He was the only child and he was the center of attention. And then he's now gone to a household where he's just one in a constellation of five children. So that would have been quite the transition and Ted would go on to say that he felt unloved by his mother Eleanor but at least she paid the bills. So I think from that statement alone it seems that Ted's physical needs were met but his emotional needs were not met and I think this also has a lot to do with the fact that she didn't really raise Ted, her parents did, so they never really had a mother-son bond and I think now in this household of five children Her attention is divided, so I don't feel like he ever got that emotional connection with his mother. Now, in my previous episode, we actually looked at the childhood of serial killers. So if you haven't listened to that, go and have a listen. But what I talked about was the two fundamental tasks for caretakers. And I looked at the whole bond between mother and child in the attachment stage. And this usually happens between zero and two years old. So basically, the failure of those two tasks 
tasks um, usually leads to a child's emotional needs being neglected. And then this gives probability to a personality disorder forming. So we can definitely see how that is being applied to Ted and Eleanor. As Ted grew up, he increasingly despised John. He didn't like John's intellect and the fact that he came from working class. Ted considered John dumb, uneducated, and that he didn't make much money. And Ted just wanted to be from a better family. He wanted to be from a family of status and wealth. And he was just obsessed with how he looked and how he was perceived. And he would often fantasize about being from famous movie stars' families. So he could get all the expensive clothes and everything that he wanted. But when Ted was a teenager, he eventually found out the truth that Eleanor was actually his mother. So sources vary, but he either found the birth certificate where the father was listed as unknown, or it was when his cousins were teasing him about being a bastard and illegitimate. And so then he was showed the birth certificate as kind of their evidence. Um, But either way, Ted did find out that Eleanor was in fact his real mother. And I'm sure this would have been very confusing and difficult at the time for Ted. And like I said before, like if I found out, I'd be probably really angry. And Ted was angry. So after this, Ted resented Eleanor and he felt that he had been humiliated. Ted's girlfriend, Elizabeth. So um, she's the one that's in that whole uh, Zac Efron, uh, Ted Bundy one on Netflix. Um, I don't even know if I should share my thoughts and feelings on this one, but uh, that whole documentary movie, whatever, I just feel like that's a really fucked way of seeing Ted Bundy because it's not the truth. And I understand that it's supposed to be from her perspective, but her perspective was wrong. Like we all know that he was a narcissist. It was a show. He was putting on performance. That wasn't him. So I just feel like we're all trying to be fooled. And the fact that Zac Efron's casted, that's just a very like romanticized version of Ted Bundy, which I just don't appreciate. I just don't feel like it's the truth. But anyway, I digress. So back to Elizabeth. Um, she ended up saying in an interview that... Um, Oh, fuck, sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> she said in an interview that Ted harbored a lifelong resentment towards his mother for lying about his true parentage and for leaving it for him to discover. So I think from everything I've talked about, Ted has some serious mummy issues. And it's a shame that he just didn't go to a therapist like the rest of us, but whatever. So at this point, uh, this is when Ted is pissed. He's angry. He's got this rage building up in him. And I think it's at this point that this rage is being displayed in how he treats people and animals. So I'm going to give you some mini stories. A neighbor said in an interview, I think her name was Sandy Holt. um, She said that Ted had violent tendencies from when he was young. So she said that one time Ted hung a stray cat from the neighborhood on the clothesline, doused it in lighter fluid and set it on fire. And she heard the cat squealing from outside. Um, she also said that Ted would take the younger children from the neighborhood into the woods where he would terrorize them because he'd make them strip their clothes. Um, 
also a fellow Boy Scout who did Boy Scouts with Ted later came out and said that Ted really loved to scare people. And that one time Ted came up behind him and hit him in the head with a stick. But Ted would later say in an interview that this was all a lie, that all these stories were not true. And Ted said, quote, people don't want to feel like they've been fooled, like they know someone and yet they didn't know them. People are fishing around. They want a hook. They want a smoking gun. They want cause and effect and it's not going to be there, end quote. So look, who really knows? Um, but that's just the information out there about Ted. Um, So as Ted got older and started to attend school, he was described as being athletic, academic, and very attractive. However, Ted's social circle was small and it was void of any intimacies. So Ted really struggled to make friends and have connections with people. And Ted was just a bit of a loner. True story. Ted later said to a biographer that during high school, he felt different from everybody else. He felt like he was faking emotions and that he would misunderstand the expressions of people. Ted said that he didn't know how other people connected with each other and how they knew the truth of those connections. So Ted would only go on one date in high school. Um, And I guess that's sad. (laughs) Um, And he also didn't lose his virginity until he was 20 years old from a one night stand, which I don't think is that bad. I don't think losing your virginity at any age really says anything about you. Who really cares? But regardless, Ted struggled socially. Ted was bullied at school and he would often get teased for having a speech impediment. So apparently this was really bad when he was a lot younger where he couldn't pronounce words altogether. But I suppose as he got older, he was growing out of this issue, but he still got teased for it. And um, Ted was also just a little bit socially inappropriate. So he would sometimes masturbate inside of closets at his junior high school. And then he would get caught by people and his classmates would throw water at him. So that sounds like a bit of a situation. And Ted just struggled, you know, he struggled to keep up. He couldn't keep up in the Boy Scouts. He didn't make any of the basketball and baseball teams. And he was just constantly failing. And this really upset him. So again, adding to the rage. Um, But Ted did do well enough in school. He was never in any of the top classes, but he did earn himself a scholarship to go to college. And I think we can just pause for a moment because we can definitely see characteristics of a narcissistic personality disorder forming just in the way that Ted is struggling socially. So he's struggling to relate to people. He's struggling in the way that he responds emotionally and how he behaves around other people. And I suppose just the way he feels about himself. Now, when Ted was a teenager, this is when he started to go a little bit off the rails. So Ted would break the law all the time and he would steal whatever he wanted. So Ted really loved skiing. He was an avid skier and Ted would steal ski equipment and he would also forge lift tickets so he could ride the slopes for free. And one time he tried to steal a car, but he was stopped by an officer and was let off with a warning. But despite any of this bad behavior and breaking the law, Ted never felt guilty. 
He never felt remorse. Now it's here that I think we can start to identify characteristics of antisocial personality disorder. Because for starters, Ted was violent in his childhood towards people and animals. And now that he's getting older, he's doing whatever he wants. He's stealing, he thinks he's above the law, and he doesn't feel bad about it. And he's demonstrating a pattern of irresponsible, disrespectful, and impulsive behavior. And all these traits are very consistent with someone who has antisocial personality disorder. Something else that is disturbing and quite telling is that Ted was a peeping Tom when he was a teenager. So he would spy on strangers through their windows. And this is really common in serial killers as well. So um, there are so many serial killers that were once peeping Toms as teenagers. So for example, BTK, the Golden State Killer and the Night Stalker, they were all peeping Toms in their teenage years. And criminologists have actually said that the act of violating someone's privacy gives the person a sense of power and control. Ted was also into pulpy detective fiction stories with gore-filled depictions of rape and murder. And Ted was really into pornography, like really into porn from a young age. And again, I don't think this is a point of contention, you know, a young boy being into porn, like who gives a shit? But Ted really talks about porn in his later interviews. He blames pornography on everything. And I just think this is really narcissistic. You know, of course, blaming anything but yourself, you fucking asshole. But anyway, his grandfather reportedly has a massive porn collection, like extensive to the point where it's too much. So it's assuming that Ted probably started his porn addiction from his grandfather's collection. That's really cute. (laughs) But Ted went on to graduate from high school in 1964. Oh, let's see my mum was born. (laughs) Shout out to my mum. Hi, (laughs) mum. Um, So yeah, he had an academic scholarship and he started studying at the University of Puget Sound and then he transferred to the University of Washington. Now Ted's studies are just a little bit all over the place in my opinion. He's one of those students that just like doesn't have a clue and no shame if you didn't know what you want to do at uni, but Ted doesn't know what he wants to do at uni. So he started studying Asian studies. Then he was failing in class and he actually started studying architecture, but was failing that as well. And I think the reason why he wasn't doing well and wasn't flourishing at university was because he was struggling socially. So he was dealing with a few personal life issues. So this is where we're going to get into a story and we're going to be talking about Diane Edwards. Oh, Diane, there's always one chick that hurts a guy when he's young. You know what I'm talking about. And then he becomes an asshole and then he blames the reason why he's an asshole on that girl. So it's like, oh, I got cheated on when I was 15 and now I'm a piece of shit. It's like, no, you are a piece of shit. (laughs) So Diane Edwards, she's also known as Stephanie Brooks um, if you look up this whole situation. But Diane also was a student at the University of Washington and Ted was obsessed with Diane. He was infatuated. He was in love. But um, what he was really most interested in was the fact that she had a very uh, huge sense of purpose and drive and she also came from a lot of money so Ted was really focused as we know on class status and influence and money so the fact that he saw this in Diane I mean oh 
golden ticket. Because if you recall, this is the reason why he hated John, his father, so much. The fact that John came from working class and didn't have much money. So Ted had a huge focus on being of high social status and associating with those of the like, which is very narcissistic because as we know, people with NPD have a preoccupation with um, unlimited success, power and brilliance, and they have a grandiose uh, sense of self-importance. So the fact that Diane pretty much encompassed all these things that he wanted, he loved it. He was like, let me get in. Initially, the attraction between Ted and Diane was mutual. So Diane herself was a very attractive young girl, and she also fell for Ted's good looks and charm. But as we know, Ted struggled with relationships. He didn't have relationship skills. He couldn't connect with people. So when it came time to Diane, he struggled with intimacy. So they didn't have sex. (laughs) And also Diane was a couple years older as well. And she was just very driven and motivated. And she felt that Ted was immature and lacked direction. So she dropped him. Yeah, she dumped his ass. And uh, she later reported that she just noticed some really weird shit about Ted. That he was socially inappropriate. But she didn't really clarify what that was. I mean, I don't know, maybe she saw him masturbating inside of university closets. I'm not too sure. But to be honest, I just think that she noticed some red flags in Ted very early on and she just got out of that relationship. I think she was a smart girl, but also a dumb bitch at the same time because you're going to see why. No offense to Diane, no hate on her. We've all done it. We've all done it, but you're going to see why she's a dumb bitch, okay? So after Ted and Diane broke up, Ted was devastated and he fell into a deep depression. So Ted dropped out of university and Ted said in an interview that Diane made him feel insecure and inadequate when they were dating. And when she broke up with him, he said that he felt, quote, an overwhelming feeling of rejection and a desire to have some sort of revenge on Diane, end quote. So like I said, there's always that one girl, that one girl. And interestingly enough, Ted's victims look very similar to Diane. They all have long brown hair with a part down the middle, except for a couple of them. There are a couple of blondes, but most of them have a Diane vibe. Now we're going to talk a little bit about why Diane's a dumb bitch. Um, so a few years after they had broken up, Ted was dating Elizabeth. Remember Elizabeth? She's back. Yeah. So um, Ted, when he was dating Elizabeth, he tried to get Diane back. Ted was begging for Diane to take him back, crying, saying that he loves her, promising that he will change. Diane, please. I love you. I've changed. I'm studying psychology now. I'm not immature. Whatever he said, it worked because Diane took him back and they started dating again and he was love bombing her and then he quickly proposed to her after a couple months of dating and as soon as she said yes, he dropped her like she didn't mean shit. He ghosted her and left her heartbroken. So this whole thing was a fucking sham. It was a narcissistic ploy to get back at her. Like this was totally revenge. Ted did this on purpose because he love bombed her to draw her back in to only savagely discard her. So just if you didn't know, if you break up with a narcissist before they break up with you, they will try sometimes to get back with you just for them to dump you so they can hurt you. Yeah, it's really fucked up, but a lot of narcissists do this. So it's actually better to be discarded. 
in my opinion, because <laughs> they'll come back and get you. So Ted definitely did this to Diane on purpose. He put her through all of this shit just to get back at her for hurting him like years ago. This is how vindictive he was. And while he was doing this, he was validating himself. Like he was feeling good about it. So this is why we don't take exes back, people. We don't do it. So after dropping out of university, um, when Diane broke up with him, that's when Ted just completely fell off the wagon. So he heavily got into theft, burglary, shoplifting, and alcohol. And it was said that Ted didn't steal to make a living, but rather it entertained him. So Ted actually furnished his entire apartment with stolen goods. So he stole wall hangings, paintings, stereos, cookware, and silverware. He also stole the clothes that he would wear. And one time he stole a 10 foot potted fig tree. Yeah, he stole a plant. <laughs> but Ted felt frustrated and he wanted more. Ted was obsessed with wanting to belong to something larger and more successful than the life that he knew. So Ted was feeling really frustrated at his inability to succeed. So he disguised this by taking meticulous care of his appearance and he would dress up like a successful, rich university student. Yeah narcissist but ted had enough of washington and being the impulsive little bitch he is he picked up and moved yeah so when he wasn't doing well he'd be like okay i'm out so he moved from washington to philadelphia and he enrolled at temple university where he studied theater so he studied theater where he would take classes and he would learn acting disguises makeup and how to play a role but again, Ted would fail class. So this is when he picked up and moved again. So he returned to Seattle in 1969, borrowed money and enrolled back at the University of Washington and he started to study psychology. So in this degree, Ted would study human behavior and human dependencies, fantasies, and expectations. And during this time, he was also working as a crisis counselor with the Seattle Crisis Clinic. Finally, in 1972, Ted graduated with a degree in psychology. Good work, Ted. You fucking finally finished a degree. You're probably 30 years old at this point. And as soon as Ted graduated, he immediately applied to go to law school. But Ted, he did poorly on the LSATs and was rejected from every law school that he applied to. Fun fact. I don't think many people know that, but he wasn't all that smart. So Ted was sad. He was embarrassed and disheartened and he quit his job impulsively so he quit his job as the crisis counselor and he wanted something new so he commenced employment at the seattle harborview hospital where he worked with psychiatric outpatients and ted was also really into politics at the time and so he joined an election campaign and he met a lot of high status and influential people and through his networking and connections he was able to leave the hospital job and he ended up getting a job at the seattle crime commission and funnily enough, he helped launch a pilot study on rape prevention. Yeah, how fucking ironic is that? Now from that job, he was able to get another job at the King County Office of Law and Justice Planning. And this is where he had access to police files and he learned about police procedure and he would do crime statistics. And finally, in 1972, 
Ted was able to enrol in law school at the University of Puget Sound. But as history has a pattern of repeating itself, Ted sucked. <laughs> he didn't go to class again and he was failing again. And I just don't get it with this guy. You know, he's working so hard. He finally gets into law school and what? He just doesn't go to class? Like how dumb are you? God, just apply yourself, Ted. So he dropped out again. But then he re-enrolled to study law at the University of Utah in 1973. And it was about mid-1973. And you're thinking, thank God, he's made it. He's finally going to be this lawyer. But no, you're wrong, okay? Because by 1974, not even one year into studying law, Ted becomes a serial killer. And side note, something else that I want to highlight and express is that I really don't accept this narrative that Ted was smart. He was studious and academic and could have had this successful future as a prominent lawyer or politician. What? Because that judge said it in his sentencing? If anyone looks at Ted's history, he was a consistent dropout. He never applied himself. And the only thing he was good at, and I know this is going to be in poor taste, was being a serial killer. So we really need to stop saying that Ted was this intellect because he seems like a moron who couldn't even finish a degree. So with all of that backstory, you can see clearly that Ted was just manic. He continuously changed careers, quit jobs, moved impulsively. And what's most interesting is that from all those studies in psychology and law and working in clinics, hospitals and law enforcement, you can see how this would build up a pretty good skill set for a serial killer. And this would later be of value to Ted in his predatory and murderous conduct. Because Ted learned how to disguise, act for an audience, and project a convincing persona from all those damn theater classes. He learned how to manipulate targeted victims from psychology studies, and he became familiar with law enforcement techniques from both studying law and working with law enforcement agencies. But despite this skill set, Ted is known for mainly depending on his physical attractiveness, charm, and craftiness to identify, stalk, and secure his victims. So now let's discuss Ted Bundy, the serial killer. And we're going to start off with his profile because Ted Bundy definitely meets the average serial killer profile that we discussed in my previous episode. So Ted Bundy was white, male, from middle socioeconomic background. He was 28 to 32 years old during his killings. He experienced childhood neglect and trauma. He's clearly a psychopath. And he was also a chameleon to his environment where he appeared outwardly normal. Now let's get into his MO, his murderous operandi. So Ted Bundy would target white women who were young and attractive between the ages of 18 and 25. Most of these women were either college students or college graduates. And most of these women also engaged in low-risk lifestyles. So this meant that they didn't engage in prostitution, excessive drinking, drug use, or criminal activities. There's only two women that are regarded as high risk because they opted for hitchhiking as a mode of transport. But other than that, all of his victims were educated and well-adjusted young women who were kind, intelligent, driven, and they all had bright futures. And also, none of them knew Ted. So Ted was a stranger to them. And any woman who actually knew Ted, he never harmed anyone. So any woman that he dated, 
married, lived with, he never laid a finger on any of them, which is quite interesting. The pattern in the way that Ted would operate is that he would stalk and hunt his victims. He would then approach his victims in public places by blending into the environment. So sometimes he would be on university campuses and he would pretend to have some kind of injury or disability where he would ask these women for help. So he'd sometimes ask them to carry something into his car. So Ted would often wear his arm in a sling or have his leg in a fake cast while walking on crutches. And sometimes he would also impersonate a police officer where the women would obey what he's telling them to do. Once he had lured in his victims, he would then hit his victims in the head and then they would fall unconscious. Then he would handcuff them or he would use rope to bind their wrists together and then he'd pull out his murder kit. So Ted Bundy had a murder kit. It was a gym bag that he traveled around with and inside of this gym bag contained the following items. An ice pick, a flashlight, a knit ski mask, another mask made out of pantyhose, torn pieces of sheets, rope, duct tape and gloves. And Ted Bundy also used weapons on his victims. So he used weapons such as a tie iron, various knives, a gun and an axe. Ted Bundy's mode of transport was a Volkswagen Beetle and he would travel great distances when it came to finding victims and also dumping their bodies. So inside of this car, he had a crowbar stashed behind the driver's seat. He also had in the back a large box of garbage bags and sometimes he would remove the front passenger seat. So what he would do is he would take out the front passenger seat and put it in the back and this was where when he needed to get a victim. So once he had a victim approach his car, the front passenger seat would be missing. So that would allow him to put his victims there. So once he had rendered them unconscious, he would put them in the cavity where the front passenger seat was. After capturing his victims, he would take them from the scene of the abduction to a new location. And usually this was a remote area. So once he had his victims there, he would strangle them and then he would also torture them. So the way he tortured his victims was through biting, pinching, cutting flesh. He would rape them both vaginally and anally and he would starve them of food and water and strip off their clothes. And this whole ordeal sometimes lasted between one and three days. So once he was done assaulting his victims, Ted would beat and bludgeon them to death with either a tire iron, a gun or an axe. So once this person had passed, Ted would then perform post-mortem sexual acts by raping them and using other instruments to sexually assault them. So Ted then disposed of the body. Sometimes he would just leave it at the location or he would dump the body in a new location. But then he would later revisit the bodies multiple times for further mutilation and he would continue to rape the decomposing bodies which was really fucking disgusting. Um, he would continue to perform sexual acts until the body was either so decomposed that he couldn't rape them anymore or the bodies had become too damaged from the wild animals. There's not many serial killers that were necrophiliacs, but Ted Bundy was definitely one. Something else that he would do is he would also pose his dead victims in styles that he had seen in pornography. And then he would take Polaroid snaps yeah, for the mems. And for many of his victims, he would dismember them and he would cut their heads off with a hacksaw. So Ted did this to 12 of his victims where he decapitated them and then he would take the heads back to his apartment. 
So um, I probably should put a trigger warning (laughs) before I even did this podcast, but trigger warning now. So um, once he had the decapitated heads, he would keep this in his apartment for a short while. And when he had the heads there, he would wash the hair. He would then apply makeup to their faces and then he would perform sexual acts on the heads. So, I mean, you can just imagine what he did, which was, I mean, I don't know. I have a mental image and it's really fucking disgusting. Um, Ted would also eat. Um, sorry, I get kind of queasy when it comes to like cannibalism. Um, but he would eat parts of his uh, victims' bodies so that he could possess them and that they could be a part of him. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, he also kept personal items from the victims as mementos. That's so Ivan Milad of him. But uh, yes, yeah, so he would keep uh, some of their items of personal property. So once the bodies were eventually discovered, they all had the same pattern of injuries. So all of his victims were raped, bludgeoned to death, and there was evidence of peri and postmortem sexual assault. So I remember that I Googled what peri uh, mortem sexual assault was, and basically it's at the time or during death. So it seems like what Ted Bundy would do is he would rape his victims when they were alive, and then he would also rape them when they were dying, and then he'd rape them after they were dead. So he's a sick fuck. So now we're going to get into the stories of Ted's murders. So we're going to discuss all the killings. Now, huge trigger warning. We're going to be talking about the actual assaults and murders now, and it's not going to be PG. I'll tell you that. (laughs) So we're going to start in 1974 when Ted was 28 years old. And um, that's how old I am. So um, that's really scary. (laughs) Um, And also Ted is just so relatable. (laughs) Like he was a law student who was 28, but I'm not a law student. I actually finished my degree. So um, sorry. Anyway, uh, so while Ted is studying law for the first time round, I remember he was studying at the University of Puget Sound. He was living in the Seattle area at the time where several women started to go missing. So we're going to talk about Karen Sparks. Now, Karen Sparks is technically Ted's first victim, but she isn't regarded as his first victim because she wasn't murdered. But I still think she's the first victim. So Karen Sparks was a 18-year-old student at the University of Washington. And on the 4th of January, 1974, Ted broke into Karen's bedroom in the middle of the night when she was asleep. So Ted broke in. He then broke off a metal rod from her bed frame and started to beat Karen violently with it. Now, this part is a bit gruesome, so um, block your ears if you need to. But then he rammed the metal rod into her vagina. But Karen survived. So Karen was found the next morning unconscious in her bed. And again, sorry, but the rod was still inserted into her vagina. And uh, then she spent the next 10 days in a coma and unfortunately suffered permanent brain damage and um, damage to her internal organs after the attack. But when Karen woke up from her coma, she had zero recollection of what happened to her. And I think this is maybe a good thing. I mean, I think if you remembered what happened to you, it would never leave your mind. Like you would think about it every day. So I personally think I wouldn't want to remember something like that. And I think her not being able to recall was probably a good thing for her. Moving on to Ted's first official victim. Her name is Linda Ann Healy. So about three weeks after Ted's attack on Karen, he attacked Linda. So on the 31st of January, 1974, 
Ted kidnapped, raped, and murdered 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy. And like I said, she's regarded as the first of Ted's victims because she was murdered. So um, Linda was a popular student at the University of Washington. She studied psychology, and she also did the morning weather and ski reports at the local radio station. So um, on the night, what had happened was uh, Linda was leaving early from a bar because obviously she had to get up the next morning for work. And Ted followed her home. So Ted followed her home and he broke into the apartment and waited for her to go to sleep. So Linda lived with roommates, but she lived on the basement floor. And so when she fell asleep around 10 p.m., that's when Ted attacked her with a crowbar in her sleep, which is fucking frightening. So he continued to beat her head in while she was unconscious. And then once she was unconscious, he took off her pajamas. He then redressed her in fresh clothes and kidnapped her. So he wrapped her body in a blanket and wrapped her head in a pillowcase. And then he remade the bed and carried her out to her car. So the next morning... Linda's roommates who lived on the upper, you know, the upper floors, uh, they heard Linda's 5.30 alarm ringing, like it was just going off. And they were like, what the fuck, Linda, fucking wake up, you bitch. But um, they didn't do anything about it. But then obviously she didn't go to work. So her colleagues were a bit concerned, but it wasn't until she missed uh, her family dinner. So when she didn't turn up to dinner that night, her family was like, oh my God, what's going on? This is really unusual. So they called her roommates and that's when her roommates went down to her bedroom to see what's up. And then they saw on her bed, there was blood. So they immediately called the police and the police came in to investigate and they saw there was blood stains on her bed and also on the pillows, but there was also a pillowcase removed. And then they checked the wardrobe and they saw that her nightgown was hung up and there was a dried ring of blood around the neck. So this was really bad. Um, The police, however, said that there wasn't enough blood to indicate that she was dead. And they had no idea where she had gone because they saw that there had been a backpack taken and some of her clothes were also taken as well. So they weren't really able to fully investigate what happened to her. But sadly, 14 months after her disappearance, on the 3rd of March, 1975, Linda's skull and jawbones were found on Taylor Mountain. And this is about an hour's drive away from her home. So Linda's skull showed signs of violent trauma, indicating blunt force injury to the head. And Ted later confessed to this murder. So he said that Linda was his first victim that he had murdered and that he lived three blocks away from her apartment. So Linda and the next four victims are regarded as the Taylor Mountain skeletons because this is where Ted would bring these victims or he would dump their remains. So um, this next cluster that we're going to be talking about is regarded as Taylor Mountain. Um, And just to give you an idea of this area, because I Googled it, of course, um, it's located in California and it's about a 12 hour drive from Washington. So like I said, Ted would travel quite far um, to either hunt victims or dispose of their bodies. And Taylor Mountain is pretty much a really big mountainous park. It's over a thousand acres and it has a lot of dirt trails for hikers. And it kind of looks like the Blue Mountains when I looked it up. So um, it's described as a grassy area with creeks, walking tracks, and it's the highest point in the area of Santa Rosa. And apparently it offers panoramic views of the city and beyond. Yeah, that's what their website says. So um, I guess I got to sell it somehow. On the 12th of March, 1974, so this was a couple months after the first two attacks, 
Donna Gail Manson, who was a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, disappeared around 7 p.m. on her way to a jazz concert at the campus library. So Donna was reported as missing by her friend seven days later on the 18th of March. Um, The reason why she was reported so late is because Donna was just known for doing her own thing. She was very independent and sometimes she would just go off on her own and people sometimes wouldn't hear from her for a couple of days. But um, sadly, Donna was never seen or heard from again and her body was never recovered. But she was definitely a victim of Ted's because he had confessed to her murder. So what he said was that he burned her skull in the fireplace of his girlfriend's house. Remember Elizabeth? Yeah. So he tossed her skull into the fireplace and it burned, but he didn't say in his confession how he killed her. One month later, on the 17th of April, 1974, Susan Elaine Rancourt, um, who was an 18-year-old student at Central Washington State College, disappeared from campus. So Susan was well-educated and she was a driven young woman. She was studying biology and she had a GPA of 4.0. So she was quite the smart little cookie. She also worked two full-time jobs to pay her tuition. So she was a little go-getter. So at 8 p.m., um, she was in the laundry room on campus putting in a load of laundry. And she was then walking across to the dorm advisors meeting to apply for a dorm advisor position. Um, but then after the meeting, she had planned to go to the movies with a friend, but no one saw her after the meeting and her clothes were still in the washing machine. So it's suspected that something had happened to Susan between the dorm advisors meeting and the laundry room. Susan's disappearance on campus prompted an immediate search party, like everybody was looking for Susan. But unfortunately, the search efforts came back with nothing. But there was some evidence where witnesses had come forward and they said that on the night that Susan disappeared, they were approached by a man named Ted who had his arm in a sling and was struggling to carry a stack of books. So I guess that's the first time that this person has been mentioned. Um, But sadly, Susan's remains were found at Taylor Mountain off Route 18 in Washington on the 3rd of March, 1975. And this was about a year after her disappearance. Um, Her remains showed signs that she was sexually assaulted decapitated and mutilated. There was indication as well that Ted had returned to the location of her body and engaged in necrophilia. Her skull was found as well and there were signs of blunt force trauma. The next month on the 6th of May 1974, Roberta Kathleen Parks, who was a 20-year-old student at Oregon State University majoring in world religions, disappeared somewhere between leaving her dorm room and a coffee shop where her friends were meeting for her around 11 p.m. but she never turned up and she was never seen again after leaving her dorm. So Ted claimed that he had raped and killed Roberta at Taylor Mountain where her body was left there. So Roberta's skull was later recovered in March in 1975 and her skull also indicated blunt force trauma. Another month goes by and Ted strikes again. It's like every month with this fucking guy but Anyway, on the 1st of June, 1974, Brenda Carol Ball, uh, she was 22 years old and she had recently been taking classes at Highline Community College and she was last seen outside of a bar at 2am and she was last seen talking to a man in a sling at the parking lot. 
So witnesses came forward and they said that once the bar was closing, Brenda was asking for a lift from strangers because what had happened was she was there with a friend and he declined taking her home. He was like, sorry, Brenda, I'm actually going the other way, so I can't give you a lift home. Like, what a douchebag, as if you'd leave your fucking friend there. And he was a guy as well, like you'd leave your female friend there. Anyway, so it's assumed that Ted had offered her a lift home, which just sucks. So um, Brenda was reported missing about two and a half weeks later on the 17th of June. And that's a really long time. I don't know why it took her took her friends I guess two and a half weeks later to report her like that shit would not happen today but unfortunately that's what had happened and sadly her skull was also found at Taylor Mountain in March 1975 so Brenda's skull was the same as the others Um, it had indicated that she had suffered from blunt force trauma to the head so in summary with all of these bodies that were found at Taylor Mountain there was evidence of sexual assault and sexual acts performed on the bodies during decomposition and Ted admitted to this. So he told police that he would revisit the bodies multiple times at Taylor Mountain and he would rape the corpses. He also said that he would redress them like his dolls and put makeup on them, which is so fucking weird. So one week later, yes, one week later, I think I just can't believe the frequency of these attacks because they're all happening within the month. Like, it's crazy. And it makes sense now in hindsight, right? Like, why Ted was failing. Because he was studying at law at the time at the University of Puget Sound. So it makes sense why he wasn't going to class, right? On the 11th of June, 1974, Ted kidnapped and murdered 18-year-old Georgianne Hawkins, who was a student at the University District of Seattle. So Georgianne had just left a party and she was returning to her sorority house to study for her Spanish final exam, but she disappeared somewhere between leaving the party and her sorority house. So witnesses later recalled that they had seen a man on crutches struggling with a briefcase near the university the night that Georgianne vanished. So Ted confessed to this. So what he said was that he had approached Georgianne in the alley behind her sorority house. So this is right next to her back door as well. And he pretended to drop his books and Georgianne Jan offered to help him. So she picked up his books and was holding them in her hands. And Ted was like, oh, my car is just here. Do you mind carrying them to my car? And so Georgianne, being the nice girl that she was, she said yes. So right as she had opened the passenger's door to put the books in the car, that's when she had obviously seen that the front passenger seat was removed. But before she could do anything, Ted hit her in the head with a crowbar. He pushed Georgianne's unconscious body in the front seat space of the car, and then he started to drive to Taylor Mountain. So on the drive, Ted said that Georgianne actually woke up and she was out of it. Like she was babbling about her Spanish final exam and she was really emotional and just completely delirious. So Ted said that he pulled the car over to the side, got out of the car and started to bash her head in with the crowbar and then he strangled her to death. Sadly, Georgianne's remains were never found, but Ted did claim that her remains were recovered in Issaquah, Washington, but this was never confirmed by authorities. 
and sadly, Georgianne was legally declared dead by virtue of absence. Now, what's interesting about the Taylor Mountain murders is that the victims that were recovered there were all from different areas. And up until this point, no one was able to connect any of these cases together. So the fact that these bodies were all found in the same place confirmed to police that the cases were actually connected and that these women were killed by the same person. Now, these next attacks and murders that we're going to be discussing all happened at Lake Sammamish. So I'm going to refer to this as the Lake Sammamish cluster. And the reason why these attacks are so bad and just really frightening is because Ted had abducted women in broad daylight at a beach. And that's just so scary to me because a beach is a public place with so many people and you usually feel really safe. So Lake Sammamish, um, like I said, is kind of like a beachy area. I googled it and it's a freshwater lake and park in Washington. And there's this huge sandy beach area. There's also grass areas and roped off swimming areas as well. And people just head down there in summer. So they go there for a swim, to have a tan, to hang out with their friends, go for a picnic, yada, yada. So on the 14th of July, 1974, Janice Ott was heading out for a tan that day. So she was actually going to Lake Sammamish and she left a note for her roommate and she just wrote on the note that she was heading to the lake and she actually drew a little picture of a sun on the note which was really like cute but also sad and so then she got on her yellow bike and she headed to the lake and then she was just there sunbathing but unfortunately she disappeared while she was at the beach. Witnesses reported that they actually saw Janice tanning on the beach by herself but then she was approached by a man and he introduced himself as Ted. So these witnesses clearly overheard this conversation and then they saw Janice get up and she actually walked away from the beach with this man. There were other witnesses as well and they reported that they also saw Janice walking with a young attractive man whose arm was in a cast. Another witness also came forward and her name was Mary. So Mary told police that around midday a man approached her and he was wearing a cast on his arm and he had asked her to help him move his sailboat. So she said to the police that he was really handsome and that's why she agreed. And so they both walked out of the beach area to a car park, which is a little bit further away. And once she had approached his car, she noticed that he was driving a Volkswagen Beetle. And she thought this was weird. So she had said, um, where's your sailboat? Like I thought we're supposed to move a sailboat. And he said, oh, no, 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 my sailboat is actually at my parents' house and they just live up the hill. Like we can go there really quickly. And so um, obviously Mary was like a little bit, mm, I don't fucking think so. So she said, you know what? Sorry, I can't help you. You know what? I'm actually running late. I'm supposed to go see my parents. You know, what? I would have helped you if your sailboat was here, but because it's not, I just don't have time. So she pretty much got away from that situation. Good save, Mary, fucking good save. Other witnesses had also come forward and they told police the exact same story. So what they told police was that they had been approached by a man and that they had been asked to help move his sailboat. So it seems like Ted Bundy was using this sailboat story to lure in victims that day at Lake Sammamish. Ted later confessed to what he did to Janice. So he basically said that he lured Janice to 
to his car. Now, he didn't say how he did it, but it's assuming that he used the sailboat story. So once Janice was near his car, that's when Ted punched her in the face. He then pushed her into the car, into the front passenger seat space, and then he strangled her. So then he drove out to a different area and took Janice into the woods where he tied her up, assaulted her, and then left her there alive. And then he went back to the beach. But unfortunately, Janice didn't leave the woods that day. And on the 7th of September, 1974, Janice's body was found four miles away from Lake Sammamish and she was decapitated. So like I said, Ted drove back to the beach that day. He drove back to Lake Sammamish a few hours after abducting Janice and leaving her tied up in the woods. And this is where he would kidnap his next victim. So the next victim who was abducted from Lake Sammamish was Denise Nusland and she was 19 years old at the time. So Denise was with her boyfriend and another couple at the beach and they were hanging out but she went missing after she said she was going to the bathroom. So can you imagine that, that you're at the beach? Like imagine being at Coogee with your boyfriend and his friends and you're like, oh, I just need to quickly go to the bathroom and then you just don't come back. Like that would be shit for everyone. This next part is actually really sad, but Denise's mother was interviewed and she said at 9 p.m. the night that her daughter went missing, she actually saw that Denise's boyfriend had pulled up in the driveway driving Denise's car and she immediately knew that something was wrong. So when she went out and spoke to the boyfriend, he was like, I can't find Denise. I don't know where she's gone. And what she said in the interview was, quote, all I can think about are her thoughts. How long did she suffer? And those thoughts are with me all the time. Witnesses also came forward and they said that in the afternoon that they just saw a man walking around with a cast on. So it seems like Ted was just on the hunt. He was just approaching every woman being like, can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? Until he found his victim. So unfortunately, he was successful with two women that day. Now, because these abductions happened in broad daylight and at a beach with so many witnesses, police finally were able to put together a description. So the witnesses that came forward uh, offered a description of this man and they described him as having sandy blonde hair, five foot 10, about 160 pounds, and that he drove a Volkswagen Beetle and introduced himself as Ted. So with the help of the witnesses, police were able to put together a composite sketch. Now you can look up this composite sketch on Google. A lot of people think that it doesn't look like Ted at all each to their own but I think it did a good enough job because tips started to come in and these tips were pretty much identifying Ted Bundy. So one tip came in and it was actually from Ted's colleague Anne Rule and she actually worked with Ted at the Seattle Crisis Clinic you know when he was a crisis counselor and she said that the sketch looked just like this guy that she knows called Ted and he also drives a Volkswagen Beetle. The other tip that came in is quite infamous because this tip came from Ted's girlfriend Elizabeth. So she called police and she said that her boyfriend Ted may have something to do with the Lake Sammamish disappearances but she said she wasn't sure and she said that she wanted to stay anonymous and she just said you know it kind of looks like him he also drives this vehicle his name is Ted but I just don't know. But the police surprise surprise didn't do anything about these two tips that were clearly linked to Ted Bundy. Apparently they actually did questioned Ted Bundy at the time but they interviewed him for about 30 minutes but they just were like nah he's fine he's clean cut he's a law student he's good to go 
But I just think the police didn't do a good job on this one. And I think all they had to do was just interview him better and maybe just go, where were you at these times? Like, where is your alibi, bitch? But sadly for Denise, she was never heard from or seen again. And her remains were also found on the 7th of September, 1974, in the same location, four miles away from Lake Sammamish along Interstate 90. And her femur and jawbone were found and she was also decapitated. Because of the timeline of Janice and Denise, it's been theorized that Janice and Denise were potentially murdered together so the fact that Ted had tied up Janice and then went back to the beach where he kidnapped Denise it's likely that he had terrorized these two women together which would have been completely horrifying for both of them like I couldn't even imagine but the police also found other unidentified remains and the crowbar in the same area now after these murders this is when Ted moved from Tacoma Washington to Utah and Utah is near Salt Lake City and Colorado. So if you remember, Ted was studying law at the University of Puget Sound, which was in Washington, and then he dropped out and that's when he re-enrolled to study law at the University of Utah. But then women in the Colorado and Salt Lake City area started to go missing. So these next murders that I'm going to be discussing is what I'm going to refer to as the Salt Lake City cluster. On the 2nd of October 1974, Nancy Wilcox, a 16-year-old cheerleader, went out to buy a pack of gum and disappeared. Witnesses came forward and they said that they had seen Nancy riding in a Volkswagen Beetle. So Ted confessed to this one. He said that he had kidnapped, raped and strangled Nancy before dumping her body in a river in Salt Lake City. Ted then returned to the body the next day to take pictures of her body and then he proceeded to cut her up and bury the remains. So over a little month later in mid-November, Nancy's body was recovered and it was recovered in the American Fort Canyon in Salt Lake City and it was evident that she had been beaten and strangled to death. On the 11th of October 1974, so this is about one week later, Ted approached Rhonda Stapley who was a 21 year old first year pharmacy student at the University of Utah and Rhonda was waiting for a bus to take her back to campus and Ted had pulled up and he had offered Rhonda a lift but instead of driving her back to the university, Ted took her out to Big Cottonwood Canyon, where he repeatedly raped and strangled Rhonda. So as Ted was in the middle of his attack, he actually turned his back on Rhonda for like a split second. And Rhonda took this opportunity. She got up and she fucking booked it. She freaking ran away from Ted as fast as she could. And she jumped into a nearby river and she freaking survived. Now, Rhonda did not tell anyone what happened to her at the time. She didn't tell anyone for a really long time. She actually hid her story for 40 years and she didn't come out with this story until 2011 which is crazy. And she said in an interview that she blamed herself the entire time. She blamed herself for accepting a ride from a stranger and she knew her mother would be freaking furious at her. So she blamed herself and she said that she didn't want people to treat her differently if she had come out with this story and people knew what had happened to her. And she just wanted to put it behind her. She wanted to live her life pretending that it never happened. And freaking fair enough. Like I completely understand that mentality and 
and I'm glad that she eventually faced it and she's actually come out with a book. So good on her for finally facing it and moving forward in life, but it makes sense why she didn't come out at the time. But not long after Ted's attack on Rhonda, on the 18th of October, 1974, Melissa Ann Smith, who was a 17-year-old daughter of a police chief, disappeared after having dinner with a friend at a pizza restaurant. So she had planned to walk home from dinner, pick up her overnight bag and go to another friend's house for a sleepover, but she never made it home to pick up her things. So nine days after Melissa's disappearance, her body was found in the American Fort Canyon of the Wasich Mountains near Salt Lake City. So Melissa's body indicated that she had been raped, sodomized, beaten in the head and strangled with a pair of her own stockings. There was also semen found in her vagina and she had freshly applied makeup to her face before death. Her autopsy concluded that she had been deceased for no more than 48 to 72 hours. So this indicated that Ted had actually kept her alive for about a week after her disappearance. So it's said that Ted likely posed as a police officer when he abducted Melissa because Melissa's father was the local police chief and he was really well known in Salt Lake City. On the night of Halloween, the 31st of October 1974, Laura Ann Amy, who was 17 years old at the time, disappeared after leaving a cafe. So she was reported missing by her family a few days later when they hadn't heard from her and almost one month after her disappearance in mid-November 1974 on Thanksgiving, hikers found Laura's frozen naked body in the American Fort Canyon of the Wasich Mountains. So Laura had been beaten and strangled to death and her autopsy revealed that her hair had been freshly washed and dried. So Ted actually confessed that he would revisit the bodies at this canyon just like he did with the bodies at Taylor Mountain where he would rape the corpses, dress the bodies in new clothes, wash their hair and put makeup on them. So now we're going to get into a very interesting part of the Ted Bundy story. This is pretty much a turning point in everything and we're going to be talking about Carol Deranch. Now she is a very important person in the Ted Bundy story. I was actually listening to another podcast who had covered Ted Bundy and the podcast is called Morbid so definitely check them out but these two women actually talked about Carol Deranch's hair and how great it was so obviously I had to look it up and fuck, she had really good hair. <laughs> like her hair looked like Farrah Fawcett. It's actually really freaking pretty. But anyway, Carol Duranch. So let's talk about her. On the 8th of November, 1974, Ted abducted 18-year-old Carol Duranch at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. So Ted actually stalked Carol at the mall. He wrote down her license plate number from her car and waited at the mall for Carol to leave. And Ted was posing as a police officer named Officer Roseland. So as a police officer, he actually approached Carol, who was out front of a bookstore at the time, and she was just browsing. And he told her that her car had been broken into and that she needed to go down to the police station with him because they were actually holding the guy that broke into her car. Now, you can already tell the type of personality Carol has. She's a very like strong, quick-minded type of person where she just doesn't take shit. So she goes out to the car and she sees that it's completely fine. And she's like, it's fine. It's all good. I'm going to go. He's like, no, no, no. We've got the guy down at the 
the police station. Like, you have to come with me. And she's like, well, show me your identification. Like, show me your ID, sir. So imagine asking a police officer to show identification. Like, it's so ballsy. But this little fucker had it prepared. So Ted flashed a fake police badge. So, fuck, what is she going to do, right? So she's like, okay, cool. So she gets into his Volkswagen Beetle, and she already thought this was sus, but she thought, "Mm, maybe he's just undercover. I don't know. But as soon as they started driving, she thought something was sus from the get-go because they actually weren't heading to the police station. And she was like, um, where are we going? But Ted didn't answer. So Carol quickly noticed that his demeanor dramatically changed. He went from being really friendly and charming to just quiet and very cold. So Carol was just fucking freaking out at this point and she was just becoming more and more vocal. She was like, fuck you, let me out of this fucking car. So Ted pulled the car over and he was trying to force her wrists into a pair of handcuffs at gunpoint. But she was fighting back. She was like, no, not today. I don't think so. And he wasn't able to get the second handcuff on. So Carol opened up the car door, got out of the car and just ran for her fucking life. And Ted was just chasing her down the street with the damn crowbar but she ran out she saw a passing vehicle and this couple saw her like she was so distraught and just freaking hysterical and they just stopped immediately and they helped her and they took her to the nearest police station so when carol was at the police station she told police everything that had happened and she showed them the handcuffs the police obviously took her statement and they also showed her a book of mug shots but unfortunately she just couldn't recognize anyone but a few hours later on that same day at 10 Ted got back out there. Yeah, he was determined. So Ted approached Deborah Jean Kent, who was 17 years old at the time, and she had just attended a school play in Bountiful, Utah, and she left the play early to pick up her brother. But sadly, Ted succeeded in kidnapping Deborah. Now, this part is really sad, but Deborah's parents actually refused to turn off their porch light ever since the disappearance. So in an interview in 2000, Deborah's mom said, quote, we always left the porch light on when they went out at night and the last one home would always turn it off. I will never turn it off. As long as I'm here, I'll never turn it off. (laughs) So sadly, Ted did kidnap and kill Debbie. He said that he had left her body in a grave, but unfortunately her body has never been recovered. But the events of this day were very important. They were very crucial for the eventual capture and conviction of Ted Bundy. So what had happened was Ted left a clue in the parking lot of the school where Deborah was abducted, and this was a small key that matched the handcuffs that Carol escaped with earlier that day. So the police were able to tie Deborah's disappearance to Carol's attack. So like I said, Carol was very important, and Carol would later play a central role in Ted Bundy's conviction in 1976, where she testified in court and identified Ted as the man who kidnapped and assaulted her. But they didn't get Ted yet. So Ted wasn't arrested for Carol's kidnapping until October 1975. So until then, Ted was able to continue his murderous rampage. So Ted's next five victims were all kidnapped and attacked in the Colorado area. And this happened after he dropped out of law school. 
again. So this is when he dropped out of the University of Utah. And this would be the last time of trying to be a lawyer. And thank God for that. So now we're going to talk about the Colorado cluster. On the 12th of January, 1975, 23-year-old Karen Eileen Campbell was staying in a hotel in Aspen with her fiance and his children. She was a registered nurse and was in Aspen visiting to attend a medical convention. And she was also there to spend some time with her family skiing. So on the night of the 12th, around 8 p.m., Karen left her family at the hotel lobby and she quickly went back to the hotel room to get a magazine, but she never came back. So Karen's body later turned up and it was found in a snowbank off Owl Creek Road between Aspen and Snowmass Village on the 17th of February, 1975. So this was 36 days later. Karen was found nude with some fluid present in her body. She had been bludgeoned, strangled and died of exposure to the cold. Medical examiners found contents of food in her stomach, indicating that she had only eaten between two and four hours before she was killed. About two months later, on the 15th of March, 1975, Julie Cunningham, who was a 26-year-old Colorado ski instructor, left her apartment after just getting off the phone with her mom. So she was on the phone to her mom talking about a recent breakup and she was just going through a bit of a hard time. So she was just getting advice from her mom and she told her mom that she was about to head out to the local bar where she was going to meet her roommate who was already out at the bar drinking, but she never turned up to the bar. Sadly, Julie's body was never recovered, but Ted did confess to this murder. So Ted confessed that he had approached Julie while he was faking a knee injury and he was just hobbling down the street in crutches while carrying a pair of ski boots and Ted had asked Julie for help. So Julie helped him carry his ski boots to his car and as Julie reached Ted's vehicle that's when he knocked her unconscious. Ted then handcuffed Julie and he put her in the boot of the vehicle. Ted then drove about an hour and a half before taking Julie out of the boot and then strangling her to death. Ted said that he left Julie's body in the desert in Rifle, Colorado and had apparently returned weeks later to bury her body. In the afternoon of the 6th of April, 1975, so again, this is about a month later, Denise Lynn Oliverson, who was 24 years old and also in the Colorado area, had just had a fight with her husband and she stormed out of the house and she went to go stay at her parents' house. But sadly, Denise never made it to her parents' house. And that was the last time that her husband would ever see her again. And that's really sad. Like, imagine that's the last memory and conversation that you have with your wife. Like, that would be really devastating. Denise was reported missing the very next day after her husband had called the parents to see if she was coming home anytime soon, only to find out that she never made it to their home in the first place. And that sucks. Ted confessed that he got Denise into his car and then he strangled her to death. He then drove out to the Utah border and threw her body in the Colorado River. And sadly, Denise's body has never been recovered. Now, this next victim is actually Ted Bundy's youngest victim, and she was 12 years old. So on the 6th of May, 1975, Lynette Culver was abducted in Porcadillo, Idaho. So Ted confessed that he first noticed Lynette playing on a field at a high school and he was watching her for quite some time. So as Lynette was walking home around lunchtime from school, that's when Ted had kidnapped her, 
brought her back to a hotel room where he raped her and strangled her in a hotel bathtub. After Lynette was deceased, Ted then drove to Snake River where he disposed of her body and Lynette's body was never recovered. And I think what bothers me about this one is that Ted didn't even know her name. He didn't even bother to know who this girl was and it wasn't until he actually saw her abduction on the news and he was like, oh yeah, that's who she was. What a fucking asshole. On the 28th of June, 1975, Susan Curtis disappeared while attending the Bountiful Orchard Youth Conference at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. So Susan rode her bike 50 miles to attend this conference. Now I had to look up uh, what 50 miles was and that's 80 kilometers. And that's bloody far. So she rode 80 kilometers on a bike to attend this conference. And after the conference, she actually went to the formal banquet at the Wilkinson Student Center and she left her friends there and she went to walk back to her dormitory to brush her teeth. But authorities suspect that she never got back there because once they checked the room and checked the toothbrush, the toothbrush was dry. She was only 15 years old at the time and she actually went to the same school as Deborah Kent. So if you remember, Deborah Kent was the one who went missing in the the car park when she went to go pick up her brother after attending the play and it was the same day that also Carol Durant was abducted so um, yeah that was Deborah but Susan's body wasn't recovered either and Ted confessed to what he did to Susan so he said he buried her body along a highway near Prince Utah but a search of the site turned up with no evidence. Now finally let's talk about how Ted Bundy was caught. So on the 16th of August 1975 Ted Bundy was casually driving his Volkswagen Beetle through a suburb called Granger in Salt Lake City. So a Utah Highway Patrol officer, his name was Bob Haywood, he actually noticed this Volkswagen Beetle because it kept driving past him. So it drove past him a couple of times with its headlights off and he thought this was sus. And also this suburb, Granger, everyone knew each other and he, so the officer, he actually knew that there was a house nearby where there was just teenagers because the parents were out of town that weekend. So he knew that there were teenagers alone and he just thought this was really weird. Officer Haywood started to approach the vehicle and this is when Ted just took off and a car chase ensued. But Ted did eventually pull the car over and Officer Haywood started to approach the vehicle and he noticed that the front passenger seat was missing. And he was like, what the fuck? So he told Ted to get out of the vehicle and he inspected it. And once he looked inside of Ted's car, he found Ted's murder kit. So Officer Haywood obviously looked inside this gym bag and this is where he found hand handcuffs, masks, gloves, rope, and weapons. And he was like, fuck no. So Ted, he was arrested. And Ted also looked really sus because he was wearing black from head to toe. So Ted was technically arrested for evading a police officer. And at this point, the police were working really, really quick. So they thought that Ted looked familiar to what Carol had described before. So this is when they brought in Carol. So Carol's coming in now, okay? So Carol was asked to come down to the police station to attend a lineup. And so when she was there, as soon as Ted Bundy walked in, she was like, that's him. That's him. Like as soon as he walked in, she fucking knew it. So 
After that, that's when he was immediately charged with aggravated kidnapping and was taken into custody and he was taken to the Utah State Prison until his court date. Something else that I also wanted to point out as well is how much of a sneaky shit Ted Bundy was because he was actually notified of the lineup before it happened. So he was told the day before. So the night before, he cut his hair, he shaved his beard and he also changed the part of his hair. So he was trying to look different. So if you you've seen the Zac Efron Ted Bundy movie there's that scene where he's like shaving his face so pretty much that's what that's about but that didn't fool Carol obviously because as soon as he walked in she's like ah that's him <laughs> and also another side note that's probably why he looks different in all these freaking photos like if you look at all his different mug shots I think there's like five or six of them and you can actually google it because they're all placed alongside each other and he looks different in every single one and I think he was just always trying to look different so he wasn't gonna get caught what a dumbass. So while Ted was at Utah State Prison waiting for his trial date for the kidnapping of Carol Durant, that's when the police got search warrants. So they were able to get search warrants for both his apartment and his Volkswagen Beetle. So when the police conducted the search at the apartment, that's when they found a brochure from the school play that Deborah Kent attended the day that she was abducted. And when the police searched the Volkswagen Beetle, that's when they were able to do DNA testing and they found hairs that matched Karen Campbell. So if you remember, Karen Campbell was the one who was abducted from Aspen, who was in the hotel lobby. She went and got the magazine. She was there with her fiance and the kids. So obviously this was physical evidence that tied Ted to another victim. And this subsequently led to his next charge, which was in fact a murder charge for Karen Campbell's death. But before we get into that, we're going to be talking about Ted's first trial. So this is the trial for the kidnapping of Carol Durant. So this trial commenced on the 23rd of February 1976 and he elected to have a judge only trial. My opinion on this one, don't do it. Always have a jury, you know, they can be swayed. <laughs> but um, Ted actually had a defense counsel on this one, but he assisted you know, because he's some big shot lawyer. So he was able to assist with the case law. But um, the judge was like, sorry, no, you're guilty. So uh, Ted was convicted of aggravated kidnapping of Carol Durant and was sentenced on the 30th of June, 1976. And his sentence was a minimum of one to 15 years. I don't know what this means. I mean, usually there's like a non-parole period or a minimum or just an actual like set amount of years. I don't know what one to 15 years is. Like what was his non-parole? Does that mean that he had to serve a minimum of one? Or does that mean that he serves a minimum of 15? I don't know. <laughs> but regardless, Ted's ass was in jail and this is when the police could get him. So they were able to charge him with the murder of Karen Campbell in April 1977. Now I was actually trying to look up the exact charge because I know in the States there's different variations of murder. So there's murder in the first degree, second degree. And I was just trying to find it because in Australia, obviously we have like murder and man slaughter but I couldn't find it so we're just going to go with the fact that he was charged with the murder of Karen Campbell. So now we're going to talk about Ted's second trial. So this is the murder trial. So when Ted was charged he entered into a plea of not guilty and he also chose to represent himself. He didn't want a defense counsel and look self-rep is just never a good idea but Ted had ego. He had confidence. He was a lawyer. So yeah he filed that motion and he pretty much ran that trial. So the trial commenced on the 6th of June 1977. 
So this is where some shit's going to go down, okay? So during the trial, I think it was actually pre-trial, but during the trial, there's a little morning break, a short adjournment. And uh, Ted had asked to use the court library to research, you know, brush up on his skills, do some case law, you know, look at Donahue and Stevenson. I'm sorry, I should really stop making jokes. So um, Ted was in the court library doing some research and he was not handcuffed. So he was left alone in this library, okay? And um, during this time, the guard that was watching him just turned his back just for a short while. Um, and Ted took this opportunity and jumped out of the second story window of the courthouse. <laughs> Ted then ran away. Yeah, he just took off and it actually took police 10 minutes to realize he was gone. But by this point, Ted had escaped and he ran into the Aspen woods and he lived in the woods for six days. So I was curious as to how he did this. Um, and he had actually broken into cabins where he stole food and clothes. But after six days, Ted had enough. So he headed back into town and that's when he stole a vehicle. So Ted tried to escape Aspen in a stolen vehicle and he was pulled over for driving erratically. So the police officer pulled him over, came up to the car and was like, why are you driving like a rat bag? But then he realized it was Ted Bundy. So then Ted was arrested and was taken back to jail. Ted was taken to the Garfield County Jail in Colorado. And when he was captured, he was actually given additional charges. So he was charged with two counts of felony escape, one count of burglary, one count of theft, and one count of auto theft. So something to note as well is Ted's charges just for the escape actually attracted a 90-year imprisonment sentence. So regardless of what was going to happen, the fact that he escaped, like he was a goner. About six months later, while Ted was in prison, Ted dropped 30 pounds, which is about 13 kilograms. And Ted had actually dropped to weighing 67 kilos, which is pretty light for a guy. And you're probably thinking, why? Like, is Ted sick? Does he not like the shit prison food? You know, can he not afford his buy-up? No, Ted lost that weight on purpose because he managed to get a hacksaw blade from inside the jail from another inmate and he sawed a small hole in the ceiling of his cell where the light fixture was. So Ted sawed through this little hole and he managed to slide through the hole, which was about 12 inches, which I guess is small for a guy because men usually have like a bigger torso than women. I could probably fucking fit through 12 inches, but... Anyway, he managed to get into the roof and was just crawling up around the roof. And then he dropped down through the ventilation ducts into a security office of the head prison guard. Now, it just so happened that the head prison guard was off for the night because this was on the 30th of December. So this was the holiday period. You know, you had Christmas and New Year's and obviously people are going to take time off work and there's going to be different shift changes. So Ted got into that empty office. He put on clothes that were there and Ted escaped Garfield County Jail on the 30th. 30th of December 1977 by walking out the front door. Ted planned this out carefully. So like I said, he's uh, quite the crafty little man and uh, he actually did dry runs of his escape. And he also did this, like I mentioned, on the 30th of December. So this is during the holiday period. And he also put a stack of books on his bed and covered up with a blanket. So I don't know how this worked because I don't know how books can look like a person, but I did see photos where they were stacked up quite high, but it worked because no one noticed that Ted was missing until the next day, like noon. So he was gone for a long time and this was 17 hours later. 
So Ted got a fucking good head start. So Ted was on the run and he started to proceed to hop around different states. So he went from Colorado to Chicago where he took a train to Michigan. Then he stole a vehicle in Michigan and he drove to Atlanta. And then he took a bus from Atlanta to Florida. But once he got in Florida, that is when shit fucking went down. Like this next part of the story is insane like it's probably the worst part of his entire killing spree because he went fucking berserk so now we're going to talk about the sorority murders that happened in florida and this part is just bad okay so this all went down on the 15th of january 1978 so ted escaped jail on the 30th of december and this all happened on the 15th of jan So that night, Ted decided to go out to a club, you know, have a little boogie. I think it was called a disco back then. So Ted went out to pick up some young college girls who could potentially be his next victims. And Ted posed as a college graduate and he approached women all night. But every woman that he approached rejected him because Ted was 31. So they'll probably like, get the fuck out of here, you old man. So Ted was pissed. He was fucking enraged. And especially as a narcissist as well, you know, those little fragile egos that they have. The fact that he was rejected, he would have just flew into narcissistic rage. So he was really angry. And um, if you think about it as well, like he's been successful up until this point. So he's been at this for a while and he's been able to get victims, but on this night he was so determined, but it wasn't working for him. So he was really, really angry. And so he walked out of this bar, so fired up, and then he sees next door is a Florida State University sorority house. So you know where this is going. Ted broke into the sorority house of Kai Omega through the back door when all the girls were asleep and he picked up a piece of firewood from outside and just went into a frenzy. So within 15 minutes, Ted brutally attacked four young sorority girls. So he first entered into the bedroom of 21-year-old Margaret Bowman, where he bludgeoned her to death with a piece of firewood while she slept and then raped her. The attack was so violent and fast, and then he proceeded to the next bedroom. So he then entered into the bedroom of 20-year-old Lisa Levy, where he beat her with the same piece of firewood, strangled her with a pair of her own stockings, and he pulled it so fast and hard that her neck almost broke. He also broke her collarbone. He also tore off one of her nipples. He bit deeply into her left butt cheek, and again, apologies, but he then rammed a bottle of hairspray into her vagina. Then Ted entered into the next bedroom of 21-year-old Karen Chandler, where he savagely beat her head in with a piece of firewood. Ted then entered into the bedroom of 21-year-old Kathy Kleiner, where he also lifted the piece of firewood over his head and slammed it down on Kathy repeatedly. Now, these last two women, Karen and Kathy, luckily survived because what had happened was that their sorority sister, Nita Neary, was arriving home really late and there were car headlights that flashed through the windows of the sorority house and it must have spooked Ted. So Nita went into the house And when she walked in, she saw Karen first walk out of her bedroom and she was standing in the hallway covered in blood. Like this sounds straight out of a fucking movie. So Karen was standing there 
and she was completely out of it. She was barely able to stand and she was delirious. Karen's head was caved in and her jaw was completely smashed and she was missing several teeth. So after Karen walked out, the sorority girls that were still there, they then went into Kathy's room and they saw Kathy just sitting upright in her bed, just covered in blood. She had multiple wounds to her face, neck and head. Her jaw was smashed in several places and Kathy's injuries were so bad that paramedics mistakenly told Kathy that someone had shot her in the face. So these two girls, both Karen and Kathy, thankfully survived, but they did suffer permanent injuries. So Kathy, um, the one I mentioned just like five seconds ago, the one who was sitting upright in her bed, uh, she wasn't able to recall anything that had happened to her. She had zero recollection of the attack, which again, I think is a good thing. Uh, Ignorance is bliss. She actually went on to have a really good life. She got married. She had a family. She said that she refused to let herself be defined as the girl who survived a serial killer. And Kathy said that the experience, quote, made me stronger. It gave me more to live for. And it taught me that no one's going to put me down. End quote. But when Ted left Chi Omega, he was crazy. He walked down the street still holding the piece of firewood in his hand. So Nita, the one who had entered the house right after the attacks, she saw Ted pass her and he was holding the piece of firewood. And there was a witness who said that they saw Ted out on the street and he was holding the piece of firewood in his hands. So can you imagine how psychotic this would have looked like just ragefully storming down the street with the murder weapon? Weapon. Like he probably looked like fucking Jason Voorhees at this point. But Ted didn't stop there. He was undeterred from this entire attack. So that same night, right after the attack at Chi Omega, Ted broke in to a nearby apartment six blocks away. So he broke into the apartment of a 21-year-old Florida State University student, and her name was Cheryl Thomas. So Cheryl was just in her bedroom, and that's when Ted busted through the door. And he started viciously attacking Cheryl by smashing the same piece of firewood onto her head. Now, Cheryl had neighbors next door to her apartment and they heard the entire attack. It was so loud and they just started hitting the dividing walls being like, what the hell is going on in there? We're calling in the police. So Ted fled and Cheryl survived. Cheryl's attack was brutal. So she suffered serious head injuries, multiple skull fractures, a broken jaw, and she had a dislocated shoulder. She then later sustained permanent deafness after this attack, and due to the significance of her injuries, she had to end her dance career after this. One month later, on the 9th of February, 1978, because you know, Ted is still on the run, he hasn't been caught at this point, Ted Bundy would attack his last victim, and her name is Kimberly Leach, and she was 12. So what had happened to Kimberly was that she was on her way to meet a friend and they were supposed to walk together to class. So they were at school, but Ted kidnapped Kimberly near her school in Lake City, Florida. So witnesses reported that they actually saw Kimberly walking away from the school campus with an irate man, which they assumed that it was someone she knew. So like her father or something. But then her father was like, ah, that wasn't me. What the fuck? But sadly, no one ever saw Kimberly again and she was missing until her body was recovered two months later. So Kimberly's body was found 35 miles away in an empty pig pen near a shack in Suwannee River State Park, where she was sexually assaulted and strangled. So now let's talk about Ted's final capture and trial. So on the 15th of February, 1978, 
Ted was driving again like a rat bag and he was driving a stolen Volkswagen Beetle. So he must really love this car. Um, but a police officer, his name was David Lee, and he just noticed that this person was driving really weird and he pulled Ted over just by sheer chance. So when Officer Lee inspected the vehicle, he found several stolen credit cards and a TV. Yeah, Ted stole a fucking TV. So he was like, okay, um, I'm just going to arrest you for theft. But no one in Florida knew who he was and Ted was refusing to give his name. Ted was being very difficult with police and they just started to get a bad feeling about him and they started to suspect that he was possibly the person responsible for the Chi Omega murders but it wasn't until he made a phone call to Elizabeth. So he made a phone call to Elizabeth from inside the jail and he was saying, hey, I'm in Florida and that's when Elizabeth went straight to the police and she said, hey, Ted contacted me. So the police from different states finally started to work together and Ted was charged with two counts of murder in the first degree. Each count was for the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman, who were from the sorority house on the 15th of January. He was also charged with three counts of attempted murder for Karen Chandler and Kathy Kleiner and Cheryl Thomas, and two counts of burglary. So now we're up to Ted's third trial, and this trial commenced on the 25th of June, 1979 in Miami, Florida. So Ted started off with a defense counsel, but it was a shit show. Ted was offered a plea deal to enter into a guilty plea in exchange for a life imprisonment, and Ted did not like this. He was furious at his defense counsel for even suggesting for him to enter into a guilty plea. So during the trial, Ted got up at his first opportunity and he spoke to the judge directly and he said that his defense lawyers were pushing him in to the plea and they were incompetent. So the defense counsel then applied to withdraw and the judge was like, no, I'm just not having this. This is nonsense. There's no applications today. We're going ahead with the trial. And I think the judge just didn't want any more delays. So the trial continued, but the judge actually allowed Ted to be co-counsel. So pretty much his defense counsel took a back seat and Ted ran the show again. I don't know what the judge was thinking because they were discussing entering into a guilty plea in front of the jury. So the jury saw this entire thing play out and I just don't know why it wasn't discussed in Vaudeer. It's just not a good look, right? Because they're discussing like him potentially being guilty. And that could probably, I don't know, influence their decision. But the trial went on. Uh, the duration of the trial was a month. And Ted, as his own defense counsel, was able to cross-examine the witnesses from the sorority house. Which, I mean, is so not okay. Like, especially in extreme circumstances like this. Because I know that defendants who are self-rep, like, they can cross-examine witnesses. But I feel like in this situation, it should have not been allowed. Like, Ted Bundy should have not been able to even speak with the witnesses like imagine being a witness and the person who attacked you is asking you questions and is trying to make you like trip up and get emotional like it would have been fucking traumatic I don't know I mean like if I was the prosecutor I probably have not opted for this to allow the witnesses to get in the witness box and testify because I mean just to insert my two little cents here what he could have done <laughs> is actually have witness statements from the witnesses and submit that as exhibits 
exhibits and then that could have been something that the jury could have read as opposed to the witnesses giving evidence in the box. But I guess it doesn't really matter because the police had really strong physical evidence. So the prosecution presented bite marks that Ted left on Lisa Levy. So if you remember, Lisa Levy was the second victim from the attacks at Chi Omega and these bite marks match Ted's teeth. Ted had really shit teeth, like he had this jagged ass tooth. So when the jury had the mold and they compared it with the bite marks from Lisa Levy, it was just like a complete match. So on the 30th of July, 1979, Ted Bundy was found guilty by the jury for two counts of murder. And he was sentenced to two death sentences for the two sorority girls that were murdered on the 15th of January, 1978. After receiving these two death sentences, Ted Bundy sat on death row until his next trial commenced. Yeah, because this fucker had four. On the 7th of January, 1980, Ted's fourth trial commenced for the murder of Kimberly Leach. So remember, she was the last victim. She was 12 years old. So by this time, Ted had proper legal counsel and he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. By this point, Elizabeth and Ted's relationship was over, but um, Ted, being the little fucking narcissist he is, he needed supply. So who does he call? A co-worker. Yeah, because it's always a damn co-worker. So Carol Ann Boone, well... She had the wool pulled over her eyes, didn't she? So Ted calls Carol. He's like, hey, Carol, you know, I actually love you. So um, do you want to come hang out with me in prison? So Carol goes to prison, supports Ted in this new trial, just like what Elizabeth did in the Utah trial, you know, for the kidnapping of Carol Durant. So they're hanging out, you know, having sex. And uh, this is when Ted becomes a father. So Ted and Carol uh, end up having a child together in 1981 while he was in prison and they continued their relationship until 1986. And that's when Carol divorced Ted. So this fucking guy was able to get married and have a kid while he was in prison. But I'm not too mad because it doesn't end up well for Ted anyway, as we know. So with the fourth trial, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Um, In this trial, there's a lot of DNA evidence that was found in the van uh, that he had kidnapped uh, Kimberly in. So there's a lot of blood stains and hairs and stuff found. So all that DNA evidence actually tied Ted to the crime scene and he was found guilty and he was sentenced on the 7th of February 1990 to death. So in total, Ted was convicted of three counts of murder and was sentenced to death three times. And I know what you're probably thinking because I thought the same thing as well, which is like, why is he being sentenced to death three times? Like he can only die once. But the thing is, if he appealed one of those death sentences and was successful, you know what I mean? So he needed like that extra security because... They really wanted this fucker dead. So Ted was on death row for nine years and he appealed his conviction multiple times but was always unsuccessful. And then he came up with plan B. So he tried to drag out his execution date by telling police that he has more murders to confess. So Ted kept confessing right up until the day that he was executed. So Ted actually confessed to all the murders that I mentioned in this episode two days before his execution date, which I guess is a good thing because now we finally know what happened to these women because for a long time they were just regarded as missing. But Ted's actual victim count isn't confirmed because he did allude to having more. And there are some people who speculate that there were more and that his victims are in the hundreds. But there are other people 
people who speculate that he confessed to murders that he didn't commit and maybe his count is actually lower, which I actually tend to agree with because Ted Bundy loved the attention. You know, he loved the attention that he was getting from the confessions and he was also benefiting from it as well because by saying these confessions, he was prolonging his execution date. But who knows? You know, the only thing we know is that Ted Bundy was a crazy, narcissistic psychopath who brutally attacked women who were in the prime of their life. But on the 24th of January in 1989, Ted Bundy was executed by the electric chair. So that's it. Ted's dead. Ted is dead. Ted Bundy's execution was celebrated. Like there were so many people who surrounded the Florida State Prison and were cheering. Like they were literally letting off fireworks. And I mean, fair enough, this guy is scum. And I think it's people like Ted Bundy is the reason why I'm for the death penalty. I know, scandalous. She's controversial. But honestly, let's bring it back, you know, bring back capital punishment. I'm for it. You know, my preferred method, if you just want my personal opinion, is um, public executions. Yeah, definitely into them. I think either death by hanging or cutting off the heads with a guillotine or either burning people at the stake. I'm definitely really into burning people at the stake. And then we can tie their dead body to a horse and drag it through the streets. I mean, just give the people what they want. It's what I would want. (laughs) Where's Ted's body, you may ask? Well, um, he was cremated and it's scattered somewhere in the mountains, which is actually nearby some of his victims. Also, that infamous Volkswagen Beetle, where you can actually visit it at the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington. I haven't Googled this, but I really hope that it's displayed with the front passenger seat removed. You know, for the full effect. (laughs) I'm kidding. But like, I think that's how it should be displayed. So that's it, everyone. Ted Bundy. What a crazy ass person, you know? And if we tie this back to my previous episode, he is definitely classified as the hedonistic, sadistic serial killer, but in the lust category, because I think he would meet the organized type, you know, like the type of killer who's organized, intelligent, socially competent, they're strategic in the way that they attack their victims, because Ted was very strategic. And these type of killers are also very aggressive with their murders, which Ted was, because he bludgeoned people to death with crowbar. And um, these killers also hide the bodies and the weapons and he did that too so obviously he is a malignant narcissist he definitely has traits of npd apd paranoia and sadism and also ted had a fuck childhood like he had rage building inside of him from a young age and it's just so transparent in his personality disorders as an adult and the way he killed as well like so frequently and violently like his behavior was predatory and sexually sadistic like the way that he was motivated by the sick sexual gratification that he would get from these sexual assaults as well as necrophilia to his victims and the fact that he was just addicted to killing like he definitely got pleasure out of it like i said this before you know serial killers experienced euphoria during their murders and they get sexually aroused by the suffering of their victims and Ted actually claimed that he was addicted to murder I actually have a quote here and he said quote you feel their last breath leaving their body you're looking into their eyes and a person in that situation is a god end quote so I think that's Ted summed up So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think it's a good one to start off with. You know, Ted is definitely a narcissistic serial killer. So thank you for listening. Who should we talk about next? Mm, I actually have a couple in mind, but I'm not going to give it away. You're going to have to wait. So get ready for the next one.
Bye.